It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Dana, I understand you have podcasting in the blood, the familial blood, the non-blood, the non-blood relations, I should say. Yeah, well, I'm married into podcasting and uh, have always been afraid of coming on a podcast because I know I'm a bad talker. Oh, you're an excellent talker. I think you're a great oh, talker. That's why we invited you on, man. I appreciate that. A voice for radio, but you know, I I, I kind of hesitate. I stammer a bit, and like it's going to be trouble for the editor. So that has thanks, never thanks, stopped Jen. us. I am <laughs> I am a lifelong mushmouth, and I will not apologize for it, and I will not stop podcasting. So here we are. Also, it's great to have a voice for radio. You don't want to be like me and have a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is whether you're going to get critiqued around the dinner table for your performance. I absolutely will. Yes. <laughs> Does your partner ever break into a Casper mattress ad in the middle of dinner? I mean, I feel like if you're marrying into podcasting, you should get some sponsorship deals for daily activities. Or, yeah. or is your whole house decorated with Casper mattresses, Stamps.com scales, uh, Squarespace? <laughs> Our new frame bridge wall art is uh, exactly the, the newest addition in that regard. Yeah, me undies. You just knit me undies into all your clothes. So it says everything is like a Patrick quilt of me undies. I think that's <laughs> I think that's the way you do it in pod, big podcasting. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0. I am Scott R. Anderson, one of your co-hosts, and I am here with my other two regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled to be joined today by Lawfare's own Deputy Foreign Policy Editor, making perhaps his Rational Security debut. I'm not sure, but I believe so. Dana Stuster. Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, long-time listener, first-time caller. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, we, uh, Dana, how is this? You're, you've been with us for like a number of years now, and how did you never get roped into this obligation before? Because because you have a absolutely magnificent podcasting voice, if I do say so myself, as I try and emulate it right now by lowering <laughs> myself two octaves below my normal my normal vocal <laughs> range. Uh, yeah, we didn't know you sounded so great. We gotta we gotta get this guy in more often. You know, I'm I'm just a long way away. You know, I, I'm not in the office when there was you know a central office, and and uh, I'm off you know editing those Sunday features and with Dan and and doing my own thing, and I'm excited to be hanging out with the mothership for a bit. You know, the the audio as it comes down from New Haven, it has to switch between diesel and electric, and that <laughs> takes a little while. You also have to edit out that New England accent, which is a real bear. <laughs> I have no sympathy for any of you because I'm doing this from Minnesota. I just like to say distance. There's not. There's no such thing as distance anymore. It's all. It's all tubes. Wait, Alan, are you in Minnesota? Oh my god! <laughs> How have we not talked? How have we not talked about this? I'm in the great, amazing state of Minnesota <laughs> for the state for the state fair, right? Yeah, <laughs> where where Alan uh, brags about the Minnesota summer to the period where Alan complains about the Minnesota winter, which I understand changes in the span of about 24 hours. It's yeah. already getting very chilly in the mornings when I walk my dog. This is where we get dark, Alan, where, where Alan just begins to lose all joy for life as the sun begins to set before 3 p.m. in Minnesota, oh, uh, our usual podcasting time. Such a northern latitude. 
Ugh, my goodness. Well, we are excited to have all of our non-DC area interlopers here today for what we are calling the So Lonely on a Limb edition. For those who may not recognize it, that is a quote from the classic Smith song, The Queen is Dead, because we are talking about one such development <laughs> this week, uh, among a couple other notable items in national security and global affairs news. Our first topic for this week, Chechens coming home to roost. Ukraine's surprise counteroffensive in Kharkiv has proven to be a massive success, leading Russian troops to surrender seized territory as they beat a retreat. At the same time, supporters of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov, apologies for the pronunciation, are becoming more openly critical of how the Russian government is managing the campaign. What will these setbacks mean for the future of the conflict and the Putin regime itself? Topic two, did you know you can eat them with the skins on? This was a hard one to come up with a good title for, so I just, <laughs> I just decided to, to share my favorite Kiwi hack. Last week, Cloudflare announced that due to an, unpre- there's a quote, an unprecedented emergency and immediate threat to human life, end quote, it would cease providing security services to Kiwi Farms, an internet forum infamous for coordinating harassment and doxing campaigns, particularly targeting transgender individuals. Should essential service providers like Cloudflare be put in the position of policing online content in this way? What's the alternative? And topic three, spoilers for season five of The Crown. For almost a century, Queen Elizabeth II was a stable presence in global politics, even as her country and the global order it helped shape transitioned from an era of empire and colonialism through an international Cold War and into the modern era. What might her death mean for the monarchy and the world moving forward? To get us started on our first topic, let me hand it over to you, Quinta. So in the last few days, we have seen what I think is a, a genuinely stunning advance uh, in Ukrainian troops uh, engaging in a counteroffensive in the country's east um, around the city of Kharkiv. They've, I think, eaten up about, I'm looking at the New York Times, it says a 3,400 square miles, uh, it, capturing more territory in the last week than Russia did in the last five months. It is honestly quite incredible. There are uh, news reports, photos, videos of Russian soldiers just refusing to fight, uh, absconding, according to the Washington Post, on bicycles and stolen cars belonging to the Ukrainians whose villages they were occupying. Um, I think at one point I, I saw some indication that the sort of rate limiting step in the advance was actually not uh, the fact that Ukraine needed to fight the Russian army, but that the Russian army was retreating faster than the Ukrainians could physically advance. So this is a frankly stunning turn of events. I think we all, there was reporting that Ukraine was going to begin this offensive, but I don't think, I think it's fair to say that nobody, even the Ukrainian uh, military anticipated that it would be quite this effective. It's been aided certainly by a lot of equipment provided by the West. But I think, you know, one of the really big developments is just the complete collapse of Russia. And you have seen that also on, you know, how how that has affected Russian propaganda. The New York Times had a really fascinating piece about how sort of pro-war, pro-Z symbol bloggers uh, in, in Russia were expressing anger with Putin over how quickly the Russian lines had collapsed. There was a really stunning clip on Russian state television that was going around Twitter 
of uh, various folks, including some members of the Duma, some political commentators weighing in on the Ukrainian offensive. And a couple of them try to say, you know, this is all going according to plan and are pretty much squashed by the others who are just saying, you know, this is not this is not working. We need we need to change our, our tactics, which is pretty stunning given how outright sort of, you know, jingoistic and aggressive uh, Russian state propaganda was in the early days of the war. So I think there are a, a lot of different directions that we can take this, frankly. Um, but let's just start off just by calling into question my, my statement that this was unexpected. I mean, should should we have seen this coming? Am I wrong that it was so out of nowhere, the success? Dana, let me turn that to you. I think the the speed of it is certainly pretty remarkable. It's been you know amazing to watch these videos of you know Russian forces melting away, of you know liberated Ukrainians coming out to greet the Ukrainian forces as they advance into previously occupied territories, uh, and the amount of territory that they have taken back in the just a, the space of a few days is really really impressive. I do think this all requires sort of a note of caution, though. Um, there's a big disconnect between the way that some people are sort of treating this on Twitter and some of the language that's being used by U.S. officials. So the New York Times also had interviews with Colin Call and other U.S. officials who were anonymous, and they're taking a much more of a wait-and-see approach with this. And I think that's warranted. It seems like Ukraine has capitalized on, uh, in part, misdirection because there was this uh, suggestion that Ukraine's offensive was going to target the South. Russia may have repositioned some assets closer to Kharkiv to protect that front, creating uh, greater weakness in the east where, where Ukraine actually has advanced. And as Ukraine advances into the east, it is now you know, clearing a corridor that is in between Russian territory and Donetsk, which as Ukraine advances into Donetsk, it's going to be entering an area that has been the site of an insurgency that's been targeting Kyiv since 2014 now. So it will open Ukraine up to a part of this conflict that they have not experienced before, which is that in addition to fighting a Russian invasion, there'll be a counterinsurgency element. And that's a, a much more complicated type of conflict to wage. In addition to the, the sort of military concerns, there's also the economic concerns. Adam Tews had a really important write-up this week in, in his uh, newsletter chart book about the economic toll that the conflict is now taking on Ukraine. And as much as we've talked about, you know, the $25 billion in uh, military aid that the United States has provided to Ukraine, we don't talk a lot about the economic toll that this has taken on Ukraine, the fact that the government is now trying to maintain spending and uh, support to a population in which poverty is increasing, IDPs don't have, internally displaced people do not have means of supporting themselves, and the tools that the central bank in Ukraine have available to them to to try to address this are, are increasing inflation in ways that are raising poverty rates in the country. That's just the near-term concerns for the economic crisis in Ukraine, not to mention the reconstruction costs, which are now estimated at more than $100 billion in the near term. So the, the advance in the, the, the past week has been you know, really surprising, and I think it's turning the tide and hopefully can start moving things towards some conclusion. But whether or not, you know, what that looks like, I think is still really difficult to predict. The end game is, is really still up in the air. 
I'm I'm curious to kind of follow up on that. I mean, there's no question that Ukraine still has a a long road to to go down here, but it does seem that the Russian military collapse that we're seeing is, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it does seem like it is accelerating in ways that could seriously hinder Russia's ability to continue this war in in anything like like what we've seen what we've seen before. I'm curious if you if you agree with me that what we're seeing here is fundamentally or at least in large part due to just a total collapse of the Russian military's ability and, and most importantly willingness to fight and if so why yeah I mean I think I've been, we've been seeing that for for months now right this war has been fought on the cheap with conscripts who had you know very little training with equipment that was wildly outdated as somebody who you know grew up in the United States and especially in the 1990s and after with you know the the legacies of the the Weinberger and Powell doctrines the way this war is fought is just you know it, it's it's hard to understand you know the United States experience in the past 30 years is the generals who who came out of Vietnam said we're not doing that again we have to have public support we have to have uh, overwhelming force and we have to have an end game and that's how Desert Storm is fought, and then some of that gets internalized, and some of it doesn't when it comes to the Iraq invasion in Afghanistan. But the preponderance of force and the the need for public support have been a part of how the United States has fought its wars ever since. That's certainly not the case for how this war was fought, and it's pretty jarring to to see something prosecuted this way. Yeah, I mean, I find it particularly jarring just because you know the the Soviet Union had its own Vietnam which is the the Soviet Afghan war which foundered you know it's not a one to one comparison but foundered in in no small part because of a lot of those same problems so it's it's strange to watch Russia especially given that Putin has sort of positioned himself and based his legitimacy on being able to provide you know a stability that was not present in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union to sort of repeat a lot of the errors that seem to lead them to this point in the first place. And uh, more than that, it really underscores there's no real easy way out for Russia from this conflict because the clear indicator and frankly, the biggest surprise coming out of this conflict, I think for a lot of people, uh, at least for people who don't closely follow the Russian military, is the fact that it just fundamentally lacks command discipline and organizational elements. I mean, it was the complete failure, and they're all interwoven, the complete failure to secure supply chains or really think through how do you actually do a large-scale land invasion in a country for whom like control of territory has always been instrumental to its concept of national security is like particularly striking. And then you have that layered on top of the fact that you're dealing with conscripts or even regular troops that don't seem very well disciplined. They don't seem to have a real sense of strategy or cohesion. They obviously have very low morale. After what has been, you know, an extended invasion, we know the Ukrainians have been softening up uh, them with artillery strikes, limiting the supply chains. Like they've been making them feel weak and putting them in a weak position for several weeks, if not months now. But still, this has not been a, you know, years long uh, occupation. This is a few months into a, a military campaign in which Russia has supply lines and, and, and whatnot reasonably well secured, you know, current, some recent hits from the Ukraine notwithstanding. It's not a great sign for Russia because what do you do? You move troops from somewhere else. You don't have any reason to think those troops would be more effective. You start a draft. You expand conscription. You bring in new people who aren't well-trained, aren't well-disciplined, and again, are the exact sort of people running away from the fight in this particular conflict. Where does that allow Russia to go? 
you know, I think the only really two options are you just keep throwing people at the problem. It's just a scale and volume problem. That's not as easy to do, even for a country as big as Russia, because Ukraine itself is also quite large uh, and quite motivated. I think that's an issue. Or the alternative is you go to what everyone is afraid of, which is you go to your massive technological advantage. And particularly you start lowering your threshold or you start becoming much more accepting of civilian casualties or much more brutal types of offensive conflict. But there are constraints there, too, for Russia. Um, they mostly have to do with this broader geostrategic position, I think, less about Ukraine specifically. So it's hard to judge how much those weigh against each other in Putin's mind, the minds of other decision makers. But there are certain constraints there. That said, I think Dana's point is, is, a, is an important one here. These dynamics are unique to the territory that Russia has recently taken. Donetsk and Luhansk, again, were the state of an ongoing armed conflict for several years that Ukraine was having trouble with before this invasion. I doubt the dynamics will be the same there. And then Crimea, very different game. Russia has you know built itself in to controlling Crimea for years. It has much easier supply lines, much easier control. You know, It's isolated. They have a, a fairly dominant naval capability, I believe, although it could be off on that, which really plays a much bigger role in terms of Crimea. So it's a different fight there. But in terms of the recently taken territory, it does look like Ukraine has Russia kind of on uh, its back legs. And that's not a good sign for Russia, uh, certainly. You understand why people are taking issue with its management of the conflict. Yeah, I mean, on this last point that Scott was saying about the options that Putin has, which is one to rustle up more bodies or start being more brutal, you know, at least with respect to that choice, it does seem that the latter is just much more likely than the former. You know, a lot of Putin's continuing popularity and a lot of the Russian people's willingness to um, sort of go along with this is because um, there is not a mass nationwide mobilization. Right now, the army is full of basically, you know, poor ethnic minorities who are trying to use the military as, you know, folks do in many countries as a way of upward mobility. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of Russians, especially those in kind of the major urban centers uh, in the western part of the country, are able to sort of ignore the conflict. Um, and it's you know, remarkable. I mean, obviously, it's hard to do polling in, in a place like Russia, but you know, you can do some of it. And um, it really just does seem like people are are kind of tuning out, which is a pretty, you know. And I will say this as someone who's who's you know parents and families from the Soviet Union, so I sort of had some sense of what Russian culture was like, at least in the seventies and eighties. The, the tuning out is is a pretty standard defense mechanism, and it has always been uh, in the Soviet Union and in, in this kind of newly authoritarian or perhaps extra authoritarian Russia. So it does seem that if Putin wants to escalate, he's going to have to do so through not not by fighting more soldiers, but by sort of increasing, by using more destructive weapons, basically, or using his weapons in a more destructive way. I think the real question is, given that the Ukrainians probably do recognize that retaking the Donbass and especially Crimea is going to be very, very difficult does that create any sort of space for negotiation where Putin basically accepts something like, uh, or not something at least not too different than the pre-war status quo and can somehow spin that into a win? Because otherwise he's going to have to escalate and it's not going to be probably through a mass mobilization of the country. Right. I mean, this is this is my big question is just what roots out Putin has at this point, because given that the, you know, as I mentioned that that clip on Russian television, the Duma members who are kind of defending the Putin government's approach are saying, well, we need to, you know, cleanse this Nazi regime. And I think that's really 
representative of how you've they've given themselves very very little space to climb down so like if you're putin where do you go i mean do you go with like a dokstas stab in the back who's stabbing who in the back in in that circumstance it's just it's extremely hard for me to see jews where, probably where right? this goes well right but you know where where are they involved right i i just i don't it's, know you could just you know, squint hard enough I mean, I don't know. Like, do, do you end up with a sort of Putin being pushed out in favor of some even farther right figure? I could imagine that. Dana, I'm curious for your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I am not a criminologist by any means, but I saw the same clips on on Twitter of the, the state propaganda and the, the shift in the messaging is really remarkable because you do have the, the hawks who are continuing to say, this is an existential war. This is, you know, the conflict with NATO, and we need to go all the way. And you know, Alexander Dugan apparently was even, you know, promoting the the use of tactical uh, nuclear weapons before uh, his daughter was assassinated. And so, there are people to the right who absolutely would want to escalate in in really dangerous ways. But you know, the the people who are trying to walk this back are saying they're framing it in terms of. It's the people around Putin. Putin's getting bad messages. It's, it, you can never criticize Putin directly, right? And there's two reasons for that. There's one, you, you don't want to wind up with polonium poisoning or whatever. But it's also, you know, this is the way out. This is how you, you create the fall guys. And then that's his way to de-escalate the situation. He was fed bad information. It's a conspiracy against Putin. We've, we've rid those people from the regime. And we're going to move forward in some more reality-grounded way. But I will say, I think there's another big constraint on Putin here that actually limits his the ways by which he can escalate. And that is the situation of global economic sanctions that are clamping down on Russia dramatically. I mean, Russia's economy is in bad, dire straits. It hasn't trickled down to the street, as far as we can tell. Like a lot of high-end Russian consumers are still, you know, living reasonably nice lifestyles. They aren't able to get certain luxury goods, a lot of international services. They can't travel. That's all bad. But their day-to-day lives haven't been like devastated. But there's very good reason to think they will be in the next six months to 12 months to 18 months. All these economic measures that, again, are the most dramatic, overpowered set of economic restraints you've ever seen put against a a country, let alone a major economy, they take time to work, especially against a major economy. But they are slowly grinding down and putting a lot of pressure on Russia. The way Russia is able to get out of it, the one avenue it has is the fact that there are a number of countries that don't participate in the full range of sanctions. So they can still engage in trade with India and China, most importantly. If Russia goes nuclear, that changes. Like that's a big constraint for him. And all of a sudden his window of domestic tolerance for his ability to engage in this conflict, which I do not think he's immune from, despite a lot of pessimism about the impact of economic sanctions the last few weeks and months. I don't think he's immune from that. And it's a trade-off saying, well, can I, you know, use tactical nukes to end this conflict in the next month? Because if I can't, then it's not clear to me I'm going to have that big a window left once the few economic avenues we have left in the international community get cut off from us possibly irreparably. So, you know, it's a really hard calculus, even for somebody who's in Putin's position. And, and it makes it the technical escalation, the escalation to new types of armaments, I think, harder. Maybe you'll have a new volume and brutality of conventional armaments. There may be more tolerance on that for that in the international scene. But the nuclear step is a big, big symbolic step that's going to trigger big international consequences. Yeah. So on, on the issue of the sanctions not trickling down, I think that's maybe even to their benefit by design. When we think about you know how 
regimes are overturned. I don't know that Putin is vulnerable, that it's so opaque. It's, it seems impossible for me to tell. But you know, the, the fact that it's affecting the Russian economic elite, that's the ruling coalition. That's the people that keep him in power. That's how Putin has legitimated his rule for, for so long, is by creating a group of oligarchs that were invested in the continuity of his rule. Whereas I don't see a popular revolution being a likely or you know, overwhelming force in Russia. What, what would change things is the lack of faith and loss of support from the people that have provided security and economic cohesion to the Putin government. Well, let us go from a retreat in real space to a retreat in cyberspace. We saw some interesting developments in regards to the services that Cloudflare, a very well known for people who follow cyber activity, internet activity from a lot of dimensions, essential one of these essential service providers that provides, I think, upwards of 20% of the internet, the ability to defend itself against uh, denial of service attacks and a sort of other kind of essential website services, took action this week to withdraw its services and cease providing them to Kiwi Farms, an online internet forum that has been very controversial because it's become a hub for people coordinating harassment campaigns, doxing campaigns, swatting, which is where you report people for potentially legal activity in hopes of getting uh, police presence called to their house, sometimes in a violent way. Um, all these sorts of organized activities targeting, in particularly, transgender individuals um, who rise to a certain public profile or have been targeted by them. They've been linked to a number of suicides in that regard, but not just them as well. Marjorie Taylor Greene, notably in the last few months, has actually accused Kiwi Farms of being a place where people organize efforts to SWAT her on multiple occasions um, and call police on her homes. But Cloudflare did this a little bit reservedly, um, doing something we've seen in a few other cases where they kind of said, we actually, you know, wish there were some other way to do this. We don't like being in the position to have to decide, do we or do we not provide these services? They actually made this decision just a week or so after issuing a kind of broader legal policy saying, we generally intend to wait for law enforcement action uh, before taking action like this to kind of insulate itself from having to make decisions like this, something that obviously did not work in this particular case, on their account, precisely because they say there's information that Kiwi Farms was involved in some sort of imminent threat to people, was a direct threat that couldn't wait for law enforcement to respond, and so they felt like they had to cut it off. So it raises this question, is this something that groups like Cloudflare should be doing? And are there any alternatives? What is the alternative? Did they have the ability to wait? Is there, Are they overstating the case here? Or was it really possible that they were the last kind of line of defense for these individuals who were being targeted by individuals on this internet forum? Quinta, let me start with you, because I know you've been following this case pretty closely. Give us your sense of about where the different actors fall on this particular uh, spectrum of whether they had to act or should have acted. Yeah. So as you say, Scott, this is, this is not the first time that Cloudflare has taken this action. It took it in 2017 regarding the Daily Stormer after uh, Charlottesville, when the Daily Stormer published some posts um, inciting violence and uh, enthusing over the murder of Heather Heyer, the woman who was hit by a car at Charlottesville. It also uh, pulled service to 8chan after the El Paso and Poway mass shootings in, I think, 2019. Um, so all of those are cases that are uh, explicitly linked to white supremacy, far-right extremism. 
I do think before we go farther, it's important to understand why we're having this conversation about Cloudflare specifically. So, you know, we talk a lot about social media platforms moderating, you know, Twitter can take down your posts. Should they do that? Who knows? Yada, yada, yada. Cloudflare is kind of differently situated because, um, as I think you kind of indicated, Scott, it's it's at what's usually called the infrastructure layer, kind of the level below you know, what you see on Twitter. It's what allows you to access Twitter. It's what allows certain websites to stay up. And it provides a number of services in that space. And so so the question is really, given that infrastructure providers are, are operating sort of not on the content level, and also just that there are like way fewer of them. So as you said, Scott, Cloudflare uh, is responsible for just a huge amount of the functioning of the internet. In this instance, the service that Cloudflare was providing to Kiwi Farms, and I think the same thing was providing to uh, HN and Daily Streamer, was essentially DDoS protection. Protection that keeps you, you know, if, if somebody is trying to basically denial of service attack your site off the web, Cloudflare will help you out. And I should say Lawfare also uses Cloudflare for, for this purpose. So then the question is, if, if you, Cloudflare will no longer serve you, then you have a really limited set of options. Um, and so the question is, you know, given that there are so few alternatives, do we really want these sort of infrastructure layer players to be engaging in the process of content moderation at all? The the comparison people often use is, you know, if I'm using my uh, landline to make bomb threats, do we want the phone company to cut my service? Is that acceptable? Now, I think um, there are reasons to question how much that analogy actually holds. Um, and among other things, I think a, a important thing to keep in mind is that and shout out to uh, Lawfare contributing editor Nick Weaver for making this point on on Twitter. The availability of sort of uh, high level DDoS protection has really expanded since 2017 when we first had this conversation around the Daily Stormer. So um, then it was sort of it was Cloudflare or nothing. There are more options now, so it's more sort of that Kiwi Farms was using Cloudflare as a last resort, and Cloudflare said we don't want this anymore. With all that background, I think it. I should say, you know. Look, Kiwi Farms is an unbelievably noxious site. I think it's good that, frankly, I think it's good that it's off the internet. I think that it is important, frankly, that Cloudflare seems to have recognized that this kind of anti-trans violent extremism has reached a level of harassment and violence that is comparable to the the kind of other extremist sites that Cloudflare took off the web. That said, it is really striking to me that Cloudflare put up essentially exactly the, the same kind of, you know, woe is me, heavy lies the head that wears the crown uh, blog post that they put up in 2017 when they when they took down uh, Daily Stormer. Matthew Prince, the CEO, put up a blog post then saying essentially, I took the Daily Stormer off the internet. I don't think I should have that power. We need to have a conversation about putting together more robust sort of standards and structures for this kind of thing. It is incredibly striking to me that five years later, they put up essentially exactly the same blog post about Kiwi Farms, even after they just set out this pretty detailed policy about how they were and weren't going to uh, moderate content on a variety of services the week before. And that suggests to me that, you know, we may, we've made some progress since 2017. We've certainly made a lot of progress in sort of the sophistication of thinking about moderation on the content layer uh, since Charlottesville, but on the infrastructure layer we're in a lot of ways really just at the same place that we were then, and that's not acceptable. Just one quick note. My understanding is that it's not 100% clear yet whether Kiwi Farms is permanently off the internet. It was able to come briefly back after Cloudflare 
rejected it through a much smaller service provider that's kind of consciously or at least well known for providing the services to other far right sites and also pornographic sites and whatnot. I think it's Vanwa Tech, something to that effect. Although it's not clear whether it's actually up and operational fully yet. At least the CEO of that company has said, I'm willing to do this and get them back up and running. So it's not clear it's gone for good. Certainly, though, this is a big hit to its ability to keep operating. The thing I want to emphasize is I think what's really important here is not where Cloudflare exists on the stack, as it were. It's it's how much Cloudflare owns the area in which it operates. I mean, the, people when people talk about the the different layers of the internet, right? There are these different models, four layers, seven layers, all that sort of stuff. These are just abstractions. Um, at the end of the day, it's just voltages going through wires or, you know, I guess radio signals in the case of, of stuff, right? It's just bits. It's a series of tubes. It's a series of tubes. It is 100% a series of tubes. Um, it really is. There are a lot of tubes. Right, it's just it's just bits, and so obviously for for various reasons, it's helpful to distinguish between the the application layer and the internet protocol layer and the transport layer and the you know physical link layer and all that sort of stuff. But it's not that being at the application layer makes you less important than being sort of buried farther down in the stack. It's that if where you are in the process, you are a bottleneck, right? Or at the very least, you own so much of it that you can control everything goes through, then then you have this problem, right? And it is, I mean, I think it's the genius feature of the internet, though it also causes problems, that the thing that is most important about the internet, which is to say the internet protocol itself, right? The thing that sends packets around different routers is radically decentralized and could have, by definition, you, you could not, like there is no way short of someone literally buying all the routers and then buying all the routers that keep coming online for someone to dominate that that space, right? So, you know, I, I think that this is worrying from a, I don't know, free expression perspective. And again, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about the First Amendment. Whenever, whenever we have these conversations, someone freaks out and they're like, oh, the First Amendment doesn't apply to private companies. That's true. That's true. But free expression is still a value that applies generally in society like ours. Um, whenever we have these free expression debates, the question is, or the way I view it, is that the the action is concerning in direct proportion to the called market dominance of the entity, right? And so if it really is the fact that they're just more DDoS protection suppliers now than there were a few years ago, it's just it's just not that big of a deal, right? And you know, just as Cloudflare shouldn't be as sharply criticized for taking this action if they're not the big player, they shouldn't be frankly rewarded for it either that much because um, they know perfectly well that someone else will provide these services. It does strike me that the main problem is where you allow concentration among one kind of entity. And, and I think this is where I think government regulation has to has to come in, right? Because once you have one entity in charge of some crit- critical part of our you know, public sphere, you have transformed what is notionally a you know, private market issue into one that is just fundamentally public, whether you want to call it that or not. And so that's where you need government regulation. Now, in the United States, it's tricky because we have the First Amendment, and the First Amendment is a complicated thing uh, and makes it harder for the government to intervene in a lot of places where we might, on reflection, want the government to intervene. So one response to that might be, well, then we need to change the First Amendment to be a little more permissive in terms of, you want to call it moderation or censorship or takedown or whatever. Um, That obviously has its own set of of, of issues. But the other quote-unquote solution here might just be that you need just much more robust, whether it's competition policy or just industrial policy, to make sure that you always have a robust ecosystem of providers, so that you know it is hard to ever remove anything entirely from the internet. Now, the response to that is, well, something should be removed from the internet entirely, like this stuff, 
I mean, this is kind of an insoluble, an insoluble problem, right? I mean, there are certain categories that I think we can all just 100% agree on. I mean, I just, I don't think there's anyone, for example, that is trying to defend, you know, child exploitation material. But like short of that, there are just very, very few things that provide the sort of universal consensus on getting rid of that would make me comfortable with a total ban rather than just making it harder, for example, to access. But I do think that to the extent that, you know, Cloudflare is just no longer such a major player in this space, that does make things better from a free expression perspective. Though again, of course, from those who perspective of those who hate Kiwi farms and there are good reasons to do so, it makes it harder. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, my point of entry for this is thinking about, you know, the debates over the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda sympathizers on Twitter and whether or not that served some sort of net good because at least it was out in the open and it could be seen and law enforcement could see it, intelligence agencies could see it. They were organizing in ways that were very transparent. And you know, I, I do wonder if there is uh, some sort of law enforcement loss to not having this platform where we see where you know this, this type of coordination and these people will now be scattered to whatever the next 8chan or Kiwi Farms is. But it seems like the consensus in the counterterrorism community was that it was a net good that those people were blocked off of Twitter, that that was actually providing them greater publicity than it was creating intelligence to to be followed up on. And so it seems to me like a, a net good that these that Kiwi Farms has been taken offline. What I find really interesting beyond that, though, is you know when it comes to the, the free speech debate, Cloudflare now has to navigate not just U.S., legal norms and free speech norms, something that they mentioned in that blog post that they posted last week when they were trying to justify why they were keeping Kiwi Farms up still was that after they took down Daily Stormer and then 8chan, they got a bunch of requests from authoritarian governments quoting their uh, policies back to them saying, well, on the grounds of your new speech policies, uh, you should be taking down the sites of these human rights groups and political dissident organizations. And, and that should be part of your, your policy as well. And I, I definitely don't envy Cloudflare having to navigate that. But it seems like the way the system is, they're going to have to take a stand. But you know, I think actually bringing in the terrorism context is really useful here, Dana, because in the terrorism context, you actually have government guidance, right? Like you have, among other things, economic sanctions, which pretty t- clearly say, hey, these certain types of actors you really should not be sort of engaging with. And frankly, we're seeing that more in a kind of infrastructure context about different types of criminal or otherwise like majorly problematic activities. Like you think of the crypto space recently, we've seen all of these kind of cryptocurrency mixers that basically are uh, programs used to uh, try and obscure who exactly is engaging in certain transactions during cryptocurrency. 
be the subject of economic sanctions, kind of controversially um, in a way that might be controversial politically. I don't think they actually are that that complicated legally, despite some legal challenges they're facing. But the the fundamental idea is that, like, look, there is a toolkit here. The executive branch can use to target these sorts of activities. And frankly, I don't have a problem with them doing that if these are groups where there really are facilitating violence or facilitating a harassment. Harassment is one of those things that a lot of people think should be protected by the First Amendment. I am one of the, this is one of the areas where I'm not a, a full-hearted First Amendment uh, endorser that I actually think there's a reason you can restrict it without intruding on First Amendment stuff. We don't have to get into that here. For what it's worth, Kiwi Farms was not just harassment. It was you know conspiring to commit fraud and you know drive exactly. these people out of their homes. Swatting is illegal. You can't call the police on somebody on a false report and the expectation that they'll be harmed. So this you know it transcends just harassment, certainly, for Kiwi Farms. Absolutely. And it's really just for some reason, you know, we see international terrorism and increasingly now certain types of global crime rising to this level where it warrants the use of these tools. But we don't see it as rising to that level when we have these activities that were like communities are being really actively targeted by with violence. And I actually don't know if it's inappropriate here, especially because these are transnational. In this case, there's a legal question if you could do it, if it's a strictly domestic entity. So, you know, I, I don't have a problem with Cloudflare doing it. I think it's probably net good that they do. But I also am not sure that 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 should let the government off the hook. I think the government can and maybe should do something in these spaces when you're really talking about forms that have a clear nexus with violent activity that's not speech protected. Yeah. So let's let's uh, set to the side for the moment the giant honking First Amendment problem that I, I think that would almost certainly create. I do think that one of the things that we at least are seeing in the in the Kiwi Farms case, I, I would argue we saw it in the Daily Stormer case, I'm not sure about A-Chan, is content moderation or Cloudflare stepping in at the infrastructure layer when threats of serious violence become socially recognized as a problem before the government systematically wants to or is ready to or understands that it is necessary to step in. And what I mean by that is that in 2017, obviously, uh, since then, the intelligence community, the FBI, has uh, really made a, a big show of taking seriously the, the rise in uh, far-right white extremism in the United States and around the world. But Charlottesville, I think, was really a wake-up call there. Obviously, that was very much under the Trump administration. I think a, a bunch, if I'm remembering correctly, a bunch of countering violent extremism initiatives had just been dismantled by the Trump administration. And so this is really a circumstance where, you know, I think I think this is fair that the government as a whole was kind of out to lunch on the threat posed by sites like the Daily Stormer. Um, HN, again, a little more complicated. I think that the the intelligence community had certainly advanced its understanding of, of what was going on there at that point. But in this case with Kiwi Farms, again, I am totally comfortable making the argument that this is a kind of a violent, maybe far right, probably far right extremism directed particularly at trans people. Um, as a subset of, you know, gender and, and sexual minorities who are facing a really a frightening wave of violent harassment and violent threats around the country. And I don't think that, frankly, the government is at a point where it can or will recognize that precisely for what it is, in part because it is so politically controversial. Like you can imagine if it turns out that you know, the, the FBI develops a task force on this. I 100 percent Christopher Wright will be hauled up before the Senate Judiciary Committee and just get 
torn into by Republican senators who are mad that he's, you know, investigating average everyday Americans. And so I think that part of what is happening here, and and again, I don't want to say that law enforcement isn't necessarily taking these threats seriously in the individual instances. Claude Fleur did say that they were coordinating with law enforcement, but part of what we may be seeing is the sort of ability of private entities uh, to play that kind of gatekeeping role when a social problem spins into crisis uh, and the government at various levels is kind of not able to step in there. Does that mean that they shouldn't, you know, that Cloudflare shouldn't have stepped in earlier? Certainly not. I think it should have. But I do wonder whether what you see is just that people are kind of at different stages in the process, if that makes sense. I don't disagree, but I will note Marjorie Taylor Greene was one of the people calling for QB Farm to be taken down before it was. So it's not you know, quite it's a, a stopped same clock, partisan Scott. dynamic. But. <laughs> so goes MTG, so goes the Republican Party. So riffing off the very sad, very depressing thing that Dana just said, from one sad political statement to another, I think, sad political statement, but we'll talk about it. Uh, yeah, so obviously Queen Elizabeth II passed away. Uh, long live King Charles III, I guess. I'm not sure anyone's super enthusiastic about that, but we'll see. So I'm, I'm just going to ask, why is this as big of a deal as it seems to be? I mean, obviously, it makes sense why it's a big deal in England. But it's like a big deal everywhere, it seems, including maybe especially in the United States, which, of course, famously fought a war <laughs> to get out from under the English monarchy. Quinton, you're a resident anti-monarchical Jacobin, not to be confused with Jacobite. So, yeah, why? Why, why do we care? Do you care, even in a negative way? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a small R Republican. I, I, I have and will argue that monarchy is inherently an affront to human dignity. I mean, look, I, I say that I'm not going to, you know, march over to London and pull the various looted and stolen jewels out of the, the royal crown, though maybe somebody should. I'm not saying it. Look, I mean, I think that there's there's been some really thoughtful writing. I think that the the stuff that I have found the most interesting and thought provoking is perhaps not surprisingly from folks who are from uh, Commonwealth countries, countries that were colonized. Melissa Murray, who's a law professor uh, who's who's Jamaican, had a really interesting and thoughtful thread about her relationship with the royal family as someone growing up in Jamaica, uh, which is very much a place that you know bears the scars of of colonization, um, and how even as she was sort of living in in this place that had recently gained independence, was sort of working through that, that uh, Elizabeth II was kind of exempted from those critiques of Britain's colonial past, and that perhaps now that Elizabeth has passed, that, that those discussions might become a little more robust um, because this sort of image of, you know, the the kindly grandmother presiding over things is, has gone. Uh, Charles is a little bit less at a remove, just in terms of, you know, a, like a, a tabloid figure, frankly. And so I, I found that really interesting and thoughtful. There's been a lot of good writing, uh, particularly by Indian and Indian American writers. Ashant Theroar at The Post had had some interesting takes. So I do, you know, want to, I, I don't think there's an argument that, you know, why are we covering this? This is just, you know, someone died, who cares? I think that's silly. Like, this is obviously an enormous deal. It is It is a notable change in sort of the role of the monarchy that the this person who presided over much of the 20th century in the process of 
you know, the end of colonization and then the the process of decolonization is no longer there. And that I think that there's a very reasonable argument that that might push Britain and Commonwealth countries to face more seriously a lot of the problems and, and tensions that many people have already uh, brought to the fore. I think, for example, when the royal family visited Jamaica uh, a couple months ago, there were protests there. I know there's there's Republican small R movements in, in various <laughs> Commonwealth countries, including uh, Canada, for one. So I think it's reasonable to kind of take this moment as a moment of understand it as a moment of real potential change um, and take that seriously. That said, I still think that monarchy is an affront to human dignity. Real Morrissey type. I've always seen you as a Morrissey type, Quinta. I'm so glad to have that moment, that that instinct satisfied. I I agree with everything you said, but I think one aspect of this that isn't getting quite enough attention that I actually think is really important to Elizabeth II's image is the fact that, frankly, she is of the World War II generation. You know, we have a collective, and it's not just we as Americans, we certainly do, the British certainly do, but I think a big part of the world have a collective particularly the Western world, like kind of nostalgia for the World War II generation and vision and a national narrative that really plays up a heroic resistance against pretty horrible, horrible political forces on the other side of the equation that's built into our national identity. And that's where Elizabeth II, even though she wasn't queen quite yet at that point, I think she came queen in 1951 or 52, first came to public prominence as a young woman, you know, publicly trying to project a strong face and being part of royal family that was trying to bring British people together, and also got some degree of international play. And I think being from that generation really allow gives you a unique position to summon ideas of national identity, try and be a bit of a bridge builder, hearken to aspects of positive aspects of a polity that is very complicated, lots of very negative aspects, but that feeds into this kind of narrative that comes from that era of, of, of emphasizing those positive aspects. I think it's we see a lot of that, and frankly, in our own politicians too, particularly when you talk about World War II era uh, presidents and veterans. I mean, when we had the first president who wasn't a combat veteran, wasn't a World War II veteran, that was actually pretty notable. Uh, and it was kind of something that was remarked upon at the time. So, I, you know, I think that makes it, she's a kind of irreplaceable figure. It's not just the personal dynamics of her and Charles, although there is an element of that too. But you don't have a generation or a figure in the incoming generation that has that sort of power to bring people together or that harkens to a sort of collective experience that has that sort of national resonance. And so I think whatever role the royal family may have played, and I tend to think it's a limited one, but but not necessarily an insignificant one in maybe holding together the broader Commonwealth or retaining some ties between Britain and its former colonies, I suspect those are going to go weaker in the years to come. Um, because Charles certainly does, seems to be a much less <laughs> remarked upon and accepted figure. He's much more controversial. His sons, I think, have a little bit more of a public persona that people tend to like, but still, you know, nothing like what Elizabeth had. And, you know, that's just not going to be replaceable. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, what Britain looks like and its relationships look like without that sort of uh, mortar in place adding to the broader structure of, of the Commonwealth relationships. Dana, where do you where do you fall on this? Are you a are you a small R Republican? Or are you a, a ultra Montanist? Is that the? Is that I'm the a term? rabid anti monarchist, and <laughs> I've also been surprised by the outpouring of you know complicated feelings, but grief being among them from the former colonies, and, and it's really fascinating to me that you know the Queen was able to 
be this kindly face of decolonization that could reconcile and recognize newly independent governments, even while the government itself was doing things like, you know, prosecuting the Malayan emergency and suppressing the, the, the Mau Mau rebellion and engaging in the Suez crisis war. It seems like, you know, the, the symbol that the, the queen became as this, the national symbol, it's, it's partly this figure that she presented and, and the way that she embodied national values, and national characteristics. And part of that was the, the legacy of World War II. But the symbolism seems to be rest a lot on the sort of fiction that she's an apolitical figure, that she can embody all of British character and virtue. And the more I read about the British monarchy, the more that just seems like an incredibly convenient fiction that the monarchy itself created. This is a you know an institution that is not subject to taxes, that is not subject to race and sexual discrimination laws, that is you know has laws that hide its wealth from the public, that has veto power through king's consent over matters of war and peace and economic issues relevant to their commercial interests. These are not the characteristics of an apolitical democratic institution, and that was you know visible in like really striking ways on on Monday during the the funeral when people who held up signs saying abolish the monarchy or who heckled Prince Andrew for his connection to the the Jeffrey Epstein uh, scandal were arrested on the street. So it's it's a it's a strange institution. I'm going to put forward a Burkean defense of the monarchy, which is if you were designing a system, that may be the only type of defense of the monarchy. What other oh. type is there but Birkin? But by means, no, by no, but of course, no, of course, it's the, obviously it's the only defense of the monarchy. I mean, I don't know, isn't this this isn't there this like that weird Curtis Yarvin ultra right dude who wants I, to I was going to mention mention Smallbug, yeah, it's just so stupid. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's the only possible defense of a monarchy, but it's actually not a trivial defense of a monarchy, which is to say that it is hard to it. <laughs> Here's my deep thought of the day. It's hard to have a working society. Um, it's it's hard to get there, right? You know, it's 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 uh it's hard to to get to Denmark, as the political scientists say. And sometimes getting to Denmark involves uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of a particular path dependent social and political evolution that involves a monarchy. And at least in England's case, that monarchy seems to have served a you know reasonably useful purpose. See, for example, the relatively high favorability ratings uh, of the monarchy in England. You know, we'll see if that stays through through through. I keep wanting to say Prince Charles. It's obviously King Charles. I suspect, in part, that depends on how long he is king before we get King William. Um, but we will we will see on that. But I'm just saying, the monarchy does not strike me as obviously worse than any other figurehead in a kind of split head of government, head of state. System. Now, you don't have to have such a system. We don't in the United States. That, of course, causes its own problems. And I do think that England has obviously sanded down um, the most anti democratic features of the monarchy. So, you know, Dana, you do point out that there is this notion of queen's or king's consent. But of course, it's not the whole point is that it's not used because if it were used, they'd get rid of the monarchy. Uh, I'm getting a lot of I'm getting a lot of uh, yeah. We're, we're just faces. we're gesticulating. Yeah. So yeah. so look, the it, it technically no, it is not used. However, um, the Guardian had a a big piece of reporting in 2021, basically about how what happens is often that you know legislation will go to the palace, and then the the royalty will basically look at it, make proposed tweaks, and send it back. So it's not technically used, but the queen had a substantial input on a number of pieces of legislation many of which involved uh, legislation that, you know, essentially 
uh, allowing the monarchy to continue hiding its wealth, not not being taxed. So is it, it's not, you know, implemented to block, you know, major social programs or things like that. But I do think that it is important to understand that this is not, you know, totally a paper tiger, that this is a, a figure who has no elected authority. Uh, it's purely hereditary and is basically using that to conceal private wealth. The Guardian's actually been on this beat for for more than a decade now, and one of the the wildest thing to me was when they found that uh, in 1999, Parliament was going to pass a law that would give the authority for uh, strikes on Iraq to Parliament, and the Queen vetoed it, outright vetoed it, and would not hand over the authority to use military force, and that is a pretty shocking, undemocratic thing to do. Might might have been the right thing to do uh, in 1999, but certainly wasn't democratic. I mean, it didn't seem to stop the <laughs> from going to war in Iraq later on. I, look, I, I take your, I take your, I take your point. I'm just saying, you know, it, it it does not strike me that because England has a monarchy, it is not just as much, frankly, at the end of the day, on the important dimensions, a liberal democracy, just like America, France, and you know, I don't know, South Korea. Does South Korea does, does South Korea have a monarchy? I know Japan has a monarchy. Uh, South Korea does have a monarchy. It does not have any political influence. What? Really? Yeah. What? Wait, what? How? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. <laughs> From whence? I, I think it predates the, the Japanese colonial period. It wow, must. fascinating. That's so interesting. Good call, Alan. I'm just saying, I am frequently surprised at how many countries have these like secret monarchies that you don't know about <laughs> until you discover that like there's like a king of Belgium or something. Like, anyway, the 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 thing that I want to say that I think is more relevant, uh, and this is in response to the capital D discourse on Twitter. I think people who get upset because on the on on the the death of the queen, people say mean things about her are kind of missing the point. You know, a public figure by virtue of being public loses the ability to just have platitude said about them. No, I don't think it should be unfair, right? You should say there are good things, bad things, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, though, I do think that it is a mistake to try to presume, you know, and at least the Twitter that I read is kind of more lefty Twitter, try to presume for other people what they ought to think about the queen and what they ought to think about the British Empire and the history of colonialism and the relationship of their country to the Commonwealth, et cetera, et cetera, right? If any country that's part of the Commonwealth wants to you know, chuck the royal family overboard, they should 100% do that according to their democratic process. Uh, you know, I don't think the, I don't think that the British monarchy would try to veto that. But if they also want to say, look, history is complicated. It's very, you know, the history of history is one long complicated history of empires and this and that and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we want to be proud of this part of our history or that part of our history, or we want to, whatever the case is, and keep that, respect that. I think that's also totally, totally valid. You know, the, the point I'm just trying to make is that there's just no, there's no obvious right answer, I think, for any particular individual or person as to what their relationship ought to be with this, right? And so I think we should just recognize that this is, is a complicated matter. Very Berkeleyan. I don't mean to tell British people how to live their lives. It's, I'm expressing my own confusion and alienation at their institutions. <laughs> I will say the the one angle, I actually think it breaks both ways. I, I'll add to Alan's pseudo defense of the British monarchy as opposed to monarchy broader as an institution uh, is that I think you're absolutely right. On the one hand, the British monarchy is such a relatively seemingly benign is overstating it, but relatively 
harmless on a certain degree. Like, yes, it has certain policy input, particularly has the ability to kind of capture parts of the system in its own self-interest. I think that's probably highly problematic. It's had certain policy roles, but it's really limited. Like people who are blaming Britain's bad behavior of the last hundred years on the monarchy are, are missing the mark. British people, sorry, you're not getting off that easy. Exactly. If, if, if I may just interject really briefly, like the Mau Mau, like like the horrible treatment of like the Mau Mau's in Kenya, it's not because of Queen Elizabeth II. It's because Britain had an empire and they were really into it. Well, sure, but she does Still literally point, have guys. the looted jewels from that empire in her crown. So I don't no. think you can disentangle it. She is not responsible for personally torturing the Mau Mau, certainly. Still midpoint. Hold on. <laughs> The key point being, it's a it's a mixed black. It's certainly a mixed bag, but there are, I think, positive elements like there are with any sort of national institution that provides a kind of you know identity and structure to it, of which the, all of which have mixed histories. But nonetheless, there are positive access, aspects that people hearken to, and I don't have a problem with you know the royal family being one of those. Maybe you could do it without letting them hide their wealth or or like avoid taxation and other things that they seem to be able to do with their privileged status. That would probably be better and fairer. But I don't have a problem with it. That said, monarchy itself is not a dead institution. Like uh, we have big parts of the world where you have monarchies that are very active in government. And again, I think that kind of sets both that works in both directions. On the one hand, you're kind of like, well, at least the British ones are relatively benign. They're still very much a functioning democracy. That's good. But on the same, on the flip side of that, it's also saying like, yeah, but you're also maybe maintaining this idea that monarchy can actually play a major role in a functioning democracy. And it's actually relatively rare that the British monarchy got to that point. You've seen a lot of other systems where you've had motion towards democratic systems at various points, then really get hedged in by monarchs who aren't able to release, release power or are unwilling to kind of relinquish authority, and then are able to provide by allying with certain factions within the budding parliament, play off and, and kind of undermine democratic institutions in favor of certain cliques within political association. I'm thinking of multiple Middle Eastern countries that basically fit this, uh, this, uh, this model. I'm sure Dana, who spends more time with this than I do, can probably think of a few as well. So it's not necessarily harmless to put forward this idea that monarchy can have a role in a stable and effective democracy. Because I'm not sure it actually usually can. It's really the exception. It's kind of like the old idea about, uh, you know, American executive government. Like we're actually very unique in how our presidency operates in relation to the to the legislature. And it's almost always been a failure in almost every other country. So I think most people have accepted that's actually a very bad model for new democracies to follow and we should move away from it. It's probably the same about monarchies mixed in with parliamentary democracies. It just happened to work in this one case. And maybe the world would be better if that one case stopped pretending it works perfectly and, and just gets moves away from it altogether. But you know, who knows? Well, unfortunately, we will have to leave the conversation there for this week, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. What is your object lesson for this week? So my object lesson is thanks to one Quinta Jurassic, who on her recent trip to the Jersey Shore, incredibly kindly, not just purchased for me a box of the famous Shriver's saltwater taffy, but then shipped that box to me in Minnesota where it was devoured by my family in a embarrassing and somewhat stomach ache inducing short period of time. Uh, saltwater taffy is terrific, especially, I love the fruit flavors. I have to say like, I'm not sure why you need a sarsaparilla flavored saltwater taffy. I feel like that's more for nostalgia's sake. Uh, I am definitely in the kind of fruit, tutti frutti, 
saltwater taffy camp, but it is delicious. And Quinta, it was just so delightful. Thank you so very, very much. Yeah, I think the weird flavors are are part of the fun. I don't know if the box I sent you had the American flag flavor, uh, which <laughs> is pretty disgusting, I have to say. What does it taste like? Yeah, an, an, an eagle. <laughs> <laughs> Bald eagle flavor. Oh, amazing. Eagle feathers, yeah. Oh, feathers. very good. Very good. I don't know. The whole, the whole experience reminded me a little bit of... Um, what is that thing in Harry Potter? It's like the jelly beans, some of which are like booger flavored or something. Birdie bots every flavor. That's real thing. world, man. That's jelly belly wax. <laughs> totally is jelly belly. Anyway, thank you again, Quinta. Yeah, highly recommend Shriver's Saltwater Taffy. It's the taste of America. <laughs> Quinta, what do you have to share with us today? I have a Civil War era meme. Uh, which I encountered on Twitter and genuinely made my day. So this is, I'm not sure precisely which year it is from, but it is uh, some kind of like woodcut maybe from the Civil War, clearly from some kind of Northern publication. Uh, So I will describe it to you, dear listener. There is a very smug looking man with sideburns and glasses and the caption it could be, is... It could be Alan or I. Go on. <laughs> uh, the, the caption is, one of the Southern chivalry after reading the Southern account of the terror-stricken North. And then in the next picture, the guy is has an expression of extreme shock. Uh, he's yelling. His glasses have flown off his face in surprise. And the caption is, after reading President Lincoln's message calling for $400 million and 400,000 men. So this is just delightful. It it even has like the format of a contemporary meme. I love it. I want to see it everywhere. Uh, it's just it's perfect. And this was uh, published in or posted on Twitter in context of the Ukrainian advance. Because if if you recall, dear listener, there were some discussions early on about how you know the Russian military was macho and the Ukrainian military was weak and woke, and it would be run over. Uh, in a day. And it turns out that people were having those same conversations back in like 1863. If you like like that, you will love the Justice Taney, no can has cheeseburger meme, uh, <laughs> which, which is definitely worth checking out. <laughs> highly, highly recommended. Well, f- for my object lesson this week, I am going to pass along another geographically located recommendation, one potential of interest to you, Dana, as a resident of the Northeast, because I had the opportunity to visit the Outer reaches of New York City this past weekend for a lovely wedding. Congratulations, Liza and Cody, which was held at a fate one of my favorite spots in the region that's so beautiful. I forgot how much I liked it. When I used to have to drive to locations north, I would go out of my way and skip GW Bridge and cross the Tappan Z just so you got this amazing approach of the Palisades and these beautiful, beautiful stretch of the northern Hudson. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And this wedding was actually on that Palisades, on that stretch, and this amazing, amazing vista and viewpoint. That's just amazing. Uh, and I have so many fond memories of stopping on my way to or from school uh, at different overlooks and vistas. And you can stop on spots of the Hudson where you see these amazing eagles soaring overhead. And you get this view where the you know the Hudson School of Artists has done these like crazy landscape for years. I had kind of a resurging interest last decade or two that are like really stunning. And then you get there and you're like, oh man, this was here the whole time. This is the Hudson River, not just that dirty thing that flows by my Manhattan. So it really is phenomenal and worth checking out. So I am making my object lesson, the Tappan Zee Bridge and areas surrounding, uh, because I highly, highly recommend it as the alternative. I don't think it's called the Tappan Zee Bridge, by the way. I think it got renamed after It's the Mario Cuomo Cuomo Bridge, which is garbage. (laughs) All all true members of the tri-state area know that it is the Tappan Zee. 
And the Tappan Zee Bridge, cool name, really cool bridge too. Kind of spooky, kind of spooky going off to the sides, hedgehog light. It's really phenomenal. So highly, highly recommend. So I, I will say, my uh, although I grew up on Long Island, the moment my brother and I went off to college, my parents upgraded to Westchester and they actually live in Tarrytown, like 300 yards or something north of the Tappan Zee Bridge. Oh, I'm so uh, jealous. And, I had no idea. Yeah, my my my, it's, my mom's office has this amazing look out onto the bridge. It's really cool, especially at night. It's super beautiful. Yeah, highly, oh, highly recommend see? it. There you go. Recommendations all around. You should come for Thanksgiving, Scott. We'll we'll uh, we'll put you in the room. I love it up there. I'll do it. I'll do it. All right. Well, Dana, you have the last slot for today. What is your object lesson? I went really boring. I just pulled a book off my shelf. But as I was, you know, reading the news about the Queen, I was, you know, reminded of a book that I was assigned in my first semester in grad school. Uh, it's Daniel Zeblatt's Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy. And it, if you want to understand how these peculiar institutions maintain. It is a fascinating read. It's a comparative analysis of democratization in the United Kingdom and uh, Germany and the consolidation of democracy in the United Kingdom and the failure to consolidate democracy in Germany prior to uh, World War II. And his conclusion is that you need the wealthy aristocrats to buy in. And if they don't, They'll be the biggest spoilers, or they will, by vacating that space in the political discourse, will create an opening for far-right populists that will collapse the system and bring it down. So leave it to the British aristocrats who preserve democracy by also preserving monarchy. So yeah, Daniel C. Blatt's Conservative Parties. There we go. All right. Well, with that recommendation, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Dana Stuster, I am Scott R. Anderson. We will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 